If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah in Hebrew means the Lord remembers. It's short for the Lord remembers his oath. And his oath was to send Messiah to be the Savior and the Redeemer of mankind. Did God remember his oath? He did. Did he fulfill it? Yes, he did. And Zechariah chapters 12 to 14 are about the time of the end. About the day of the Lord. The time for the rapture and the resurrection through the seven year tribulation period through the messianic kingdom to the new heavens and the new earth. In Old Testament terms we would say in that day. So if you look at verse 4, what are the first three words? In that day. So it's a teaching about the day of the Lord. We've not come to that point yet. It's still just a little bit future. It says in that day, says the Lord. And you see how the word Lord is spelled. That's the four Hebrew letters, yod Hey vav Hey. That's the name from Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and following that says, I will be whom I will be. It's the personal name of the Lord. It's also our Messiah, Yeshua. Because how many times in the scriptures he called the Lord Yeshua. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Yes, this is poetic language and it means that God will invoke the fog of war. When the nations come against Israel in the tribulation period, God will confuse the armies and they're going to turn on and fire on each other. They're going to lose the ability to determine who are friends and who are foes. So when they have come to destroy Israel, they will end up turning on each other. We see it first in the battle of Gog and Magog. Go to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. If I have my timeline correct, the Battle of Gog and Magog will be about three years into the tribulation period, or about three years after the rapture. In Ezekiel chapter 38, Russia, Iran, and Turkey lead an amalgamation of nations to come unto the Golan Heights, which separates today Israel from Syria. To try and destroy Israel. But that's as far as they get. When God will intervene. And here it is in Ezekiel chapter 38. We'll start in verse 18. Because it sets up the scenario. And it will come to pass at the same time. Meaning in the day of the Lord. When Gog comes against the land of Israel. Gog is a person. Gog is the leader of Russia. That leads this entire amalgamation of armies made up of the Muslim nations that do not share a border with Israel. Says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. That word fury means God is not just a little unhappy. He is furious. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. There should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. What does God mean by a great earthquake? Is that a five, a six? A seven? No. The earthquake is going to be felt all the way over here in the United States. It's so big. Verse 20 says, So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, 
and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. What do you think it means, shall shake at my presence? The Lord God personally comes down and intervenes to stop this advance by the Muslim armies. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. This is that confusion that Zechariah chapter 12 is talking about. The armies will turn on each other. Verse 22, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I'll rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with them, with flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Those great hailstones, otherwise, in the book of Revelation, are said to weigh how much? 80 to 100 pounds. Can you imagine hailstones of that size falling, what they would do to an army? Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known the eyes of many nations. What does that mean? That means not just Israel will get saved, but many of the nations of the world will realize that there's a God in heaven, and the Bible is true, and they will get saved. Well, isn't it in Job where it talks about the storehouse of those Yep, yeah, it talks about it in Job. It's also in Revelation. It's in several places in the scripture. But how many have seen a hailstone the size of a tennis ball? There's been a lot of pictures of the damage they've done in Texas. Those didn't weigh a pound. So multiply that by 100, and the damage will be un unimaginable. So then, says, then they shall know that I am the Lord, that is, the nations get saved. We also see in the book of Isaiah, turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. Found hailstone would be about the size of your speaker there, or a little bit larger. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. The confusion. This is a verse that I include in my prayers a lot. It says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. So as much as Iran is trying to make nuclear weapons so they can destroy Israel, God says it's not going to happen, it's not going to succeed. So in every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So the nations will come to destroy Israel, and God says, I will not allow it to succeed. So let's go back to Zechariah 12 and go to verse 5. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts. They're gone. Now, you know exactly where verse 5 fits in prophecy, don't you? 
Remember the last two verses of Ezekiel 38 we just read, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. That's when Israel gets saved. So in verse 5, the children of Israel have come to the Lord God. They've accepted Messiah's Yeshua. They've gotten saved. And now when they call upon the Lord to defend them, the Lord's going to defend them. So when it says, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. Lord of hosts is an end times reference in Hebrews, Adonai Zavaot, and it refers to Messiah leading the armies of heaven for the battle of Armageddon. And it tells us in Romans chapter 11 that all Israel will get saved, and we just saw where it happens at the battle of Gog and Magog. So go to Romans 11, and let's put our eyes on it. Romans 11, verses 26 and 27. Romans 11, verses 26 and 27. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer, who's the Deliverer? That's Messiah, Yeshua. Will come out of Zion. What is Zion? That's prophetic Jerusalem. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So when the Lord intervenes at the battle of Gog and Magog and the people see that the Bible is true, that there is a God in heaven, he sent his only begotten son, he did die for us, then they will turn away from ungodliness and come back to God. He says, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Which covenant is that? That's the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31 and see that covenant. It's also in Hebrews chapter 8, but I like to go back to Jeremiah 31 because a lot of people are just shocked to learn that the new covenant's in the old covenant. Jeremiah 31. God promises that new covenant that was secured or made effective by the shed blood of Messiah when he died for us on Calvary's tree. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, days plural, that started 2,000 years ago in Messiah's day. Says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, say renewed covenant, a brit chadashah. The word chadashah is related to the new moon. Once a month, God shows a new moon, Right? Does he throw the old moon in a rock crusher and get out his erector set and build a new one? No, it means it's renewed. It's made fresh again. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Wait a minute, I thought it was with the church. No, it's with Israel and Judah. But under Romans chapter 8 through 11, what happens when a Gentile gets saved? They get grafted in like a wild olive tree being grafted into a cultivated tree. We get grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. So verse 31 started 2,000 years ago. Verse 33 is in the day of the Lord. So the new covenant for 2,000 years has been bringing people in, but we're not in the fullness of it yet. 
Verse 33, with this covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. How's that different from verse 31? It's not Israel and Judah, it's Israel. When are Israel and Judah put back into one nation? In the day of the Lord when Messiah returns. Says the Lord, I'll put my law, that's my Torah, his commandments, statutes, and judgment in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the salvation of Romans 11, 26 and 27. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. What's another word for iniquity? Lawlessness. And their sin I'll remember no more. Back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 5. You see that phrase in verse 5, the Lord of hosts, referring to end times prophecy, our Messiah Yeshua leading the armies of heaven for Armageddon. That phrase, Lord of hosts, appears 235 times in the Old Testament. So how much of the Old Testament is about end times events? At least 235 places, yeah. In other words, it's a lot. And the phrase, the Lord God of hosts, appears another 33 times. Why is that? Is that because the Lord doesn't think we know who he is? Or is it a reminder that the same Lord in Genesis chapter 1 is the Lord in Revelation 22? And the Lord does not change. Hmm. Zechariah 12, verse 6. Oh, no. We got to do more in 5 first. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I mustn't forget 1 Samuel. First Samuel chapter four. In the New Testament, they don't use the phrase the Lord of hosts. They use the name Yeshua or in English Jesus. It appears in the New Testament a thousand and forty-three times. He is the Lord of hosts. In first Samuel chapter four, verse four it says. First Samuel chapter four. Verse four. Don't go to first Samuel eight. You can't add them together. One's a chapter, one's never mind. Okay. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Who can tell me why this verse is relevant? 
It's the first time they use the phrase the Lord of Hosts. Hophni and Phineas are wicked and evil, but that's really not why we came. It's a true fact. But the Lord of Hosts and the word God are parallel here. Meaning they mean the same thing. So the Ark of the Covenant has the Lord of Hosts sitting on the mercy seat. The Lord of Hosts is our Messiah Yeshua. But that was before he was born in Bethlehem. Does that mean the Lord existed before Bethlehem? Yep, remember, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But that's the first occurrence in the Bible of the phrase, the Lord of hosts, which begins to focus us on why does the Lord of hosts sit on the mercy seat? Who was it that was going to take on a body of flesh and blood to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins? That's why he sits on the mercy seat. In 1 Samuel, go to chapter 17. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. Which Philistine is this, do you think? Goliath. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So again, the Lord of hosts is God. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Well, if you're worried, we'll go to all 235 occurrences. Nah, we, we'd never get through that. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei Yehuda to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name. How would you say the name in Hebrew? Hashem. Mm -hmm. The Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And then chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 26 to 27. Second Samuel. Verse 7. Verses 26 to 27. Looks like all the pages have stopped turning. It says, so let your name be magnified forever. For how long? Forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. Let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servants, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant is founded in his heart to pray this prayer to you. To Psalm 48. 
Mr. Wayne. Yes, ma'am. A question about the Lord of Hosts. So we know that it talks about the Lord's armies, but here we're seeing that it's talking about him in an individual way. Yep. And I, I do always think that an army of one with him is sufficient. But <laughs> yeah. it, it's kind of a... It's kind of a, a mix of thinking, thinking a bunch of being an army. Yeah, when it says Lord of Hosts, that word host, Zavaot, means armies, military force. So when Messiah returns in Revelation 19, does he return alone, or who else is on those white horses? We are, that's right, the that's raptured right. and resurrected saints. So we are the hosts. Yes, Ebend. If it's helpful, um, we use the word host to mean many now, but in older English, host always meant um, the company of soldiers, right. the armies. It, it, it wasn't a general term. If a man stood before the host, you knew it was a military fic uh, picture. Right. The but word Zavaot in Hebrew literally means now. armies. Yep. Yeah, it, it all every time. You're right. Good job. Okay. Psalm 48, verse 8. As we have heard, so have we seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. In that verse, we have Hebrew parallelism. The city of the Lord of hosts is the city of our God. So who is the Lord of hosts? He is our God. Psalm 59, verse 5. Somebody out there is thinking, how many of these are we going to look at? And why? Well, remember last week I said I get a lot of emails about people saying that Jesus is not God? I got a bunch more this week. And what happens when I get all those emails? You get a lecture. No. Okay. Psalm 59, verse 5. We've got to look and see, what does the Bible say? It says, You therefore, O Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations, and do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Again, O Lord, the God of hosts and the God of Israel are two ways of saying the very same thing. <laughs> And then Psalm 84, verse 3, the very last one, unless I think of another. Psalm chapter 84, verse 3. This one adds a word that the others have not. Psalm 84, verse 3. Even the sparrow has found a home. And the swallow a nest for herself, for she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Who is going to be king through the Messianic kingdom, ruling and reigning right here on earth from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Our Messiah Yeshua. All right. Next topic. Go back to Zechariah chapter 12. We're up to verse 6. In that day, what day? 
Day of the Lord. There are three major wars, right? The Psalm 83 war, then the Ezekiel war of Gog and Magog, and then Armageddon. Verse 6, in that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile. What's a fire pan? It's a pan that holds something burning like coals, something on fire. Why would you put something like that in a wood pile? To catch it on fire. I don't know about you guys. That's the wrong place, though, the woodpile. Yeah. I wonder how forest fires get started when somebody flicks a cigarette out the window. Because I go to my woodpile that I've got for burning in the backyard, and I spend sometimes half an hour trying to get that thing to burn. But you put a fire pan in the woodpile, and it's going to burn. So that's what it's talking about here. The leaders of Judah, with God leading them into battle, will have great victories during the day of the Lord, during the tribulation period. It says, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. What's a sheave? Bundle of stalks of grain. Once they remove the grain from the stalks. Anybody ever live on a farm? How does hay and straw burn when you put fire? Oh man, it burns in an instant. It says, they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. So verse 6 says, when all those armies of the world come against Israel to destroy her in the day of the Lord, they're going to fail. That God is going to make the Israeli army a mighty force because he's in the midst of it. He is the God of hosts. He is the one leading the armies. And the surrounding peoples, they're going to be defeated. There was somebody in Go to Meeting Land. Who was that? Must have been an incidental open mic. It says, But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. What did the United Nations offer Israel before 1948? A new homeland in Africa. Does the scripture say there will be a new Jerusalem in Africa? No, it says it's going to be again in her own place. So Israel will destroy the invaders because God is in the midst of the battle. Verse 7. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. Verse 7 means the Lord is going to liberate all the other cities in Israel before he liberates Jerusalem. Why? It says right here. So that the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah meaning he doesn't want the inhabitants of Jerusalem to think, hey, look at us, we did this. We, with our might, defeated all those armies. No, they need to look to the Lord God and say, we didn't do it. God did it. God delivered us. Verse 8, in that day. How many times has God said in that day in this one chapter? Where's our focus on the day of the Lord, on the tribulation period. So verse 8 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. We just looked back in the book of Samuel. Who did David defeat? Goliath. Now, wait a minute. David might have been, what, five foot? Maybe. Little red-haired, scrappy kid. And how tall was Goliath? About nine feet something. In other words, almost twice as big. You know, he laughed at David. David, you're like an insect in my sight. And who walked away that day? David did. Carrying Goliath's head, if I remember correctly. And Goliath's sword in the other, but he probably had to drag it around the ground because he was, it was a big, big sword. Okay. But in that day, the one who's feeble among them shall be like David, which means they're going to be mighty warriors. Who gives them that strength, though? Comes from the Lord. Can anybody think of a mighty warrior in the scripture who had superhuman strength and defeated multitudes of the Philistines by himself? Samson. Is that because Samson was a big weightlifter? No. It's because God was on his side. <laughs> I don't know if he was a weightlifter, but he was a weight pusher as he pushed down that temple. Yeah, okay. Verse 8 goes on to say, And the house of David shall be like God, meaning the might and power of God will be demonstrated amongst them, like the angel of the Lord before them. Notice angel is capitalized. When you see the angel of the Lord, that's a term for Messiah. Why would Messiah be described as an angel? The word angel in Hebrew simply means messenger, one who speaks on behalf of. It doesn't necessarily mean a created being like a seraphim or a cherubim. So verse 8 means that God is going to make all of the Israeli defense forces like mighty warriors, like David and like Samson. Because verse 9 tells us that it is God who intervenes. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Who is that I? Is it Zechariah? No, it's the Lord. So the Lord himself intervenes. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 38. Let's go back and look at it one more time. To see how God personally intervenes. And of course the Old Testament type history was when Sennacherib came and had Jerusalem under siege. And God destroyed the Syrian army 185,000 strong in one night by himself. Didn't need any help. So again, the verses are 18 through 23, which we've already read. But how many times in verses 18 to 23 do you see the word I? And I is God. Just take a look. In verse 18, it says, my fury, my face. Verse 19, my jealousy, my wrath. In verse 20, my presence. In verse 21, I will call for a sword. In verse 22, I will bring him to judgment. I will rain down on him. Verse 23, I will magnify myself. 
The Lord makes the Israeli defense forces like a mighty army, but he doesn't need them, as you guys have said. God plus an army of one's majority, and he didn't need the one. So back to Zechariah 12, verse 9. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. We can see it in Revelation chapter 19. Go to Revelation 19. Where Messiah returns for the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, what does behold mean? This is really important, don't miss this. A white horse. Think back to the days of the Bible. If a king came in peace, he came riding on a donkey. If he comes riding on a horse, he's coming for war. When Messiah rode into Jerusalem in Matthew, it was on a donkey. He came to bring peace. When he comes in Revelation 19, here's the horse. He who sat in him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire in prophecy always pictures judgment. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written and no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That robe is the talit. This thing I'm wearing, the prayer shawl. In Messiah's day, when a Jewish man was buried, this is what was wrapped around his face as the face cloth. This is what the apostles saw folded, lying by itself, where they knew he was alive, because every man has his own way of folding his tallit. Being wrapped around his head, what do you know about head wounds? They bleed profusely. So the blood that he comes with the robe dipped in blood is the blood he shed for us at his crucifixion. And his name is called the Word of God. Give me a verse. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And the armies in heaven. There's the Zavaoth. There's the hosts. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Followed him on white horses. That's us. That's the raptured and resurrected saints. Scripture says, what's the fine linen? The righteous deeds of the saints. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Not literally. What is that sharp sword? It's the word of God. That with it he should strike the nations. Those are the nations that came against Jerusalem. And he himself shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm chapter 2. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's Isaiah 63. But why the phrase the winepress? Where did Messiah pray and weep before he was arrested? Garden of Gethsemane. Gatshmoni is an olive press. A press... The way you get oil out of the olives, you put them in the uh, mesh basket and put them up on the press and put a stone upon it. 
And as it crushes the olive, the olive oil comes out. And just as he was crushed in a press, when he comes in Isaiah 63, he's going to crush the nations that have come against Israel. So that's why it uses the phrase the wine press. Also reminds us of Revelation 14 where the blood comes up to the horse's bridle for how long? About 200 miles. Verse 16, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Oh, he's got a tattoo. No, he doesn't have a tattoo. Tattoos are forbidden. But on the corner of the robe dipped in blood are the zitzit that remind us of God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. But notice the knots up here. They're tied to represent four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav which is the name of God, which we translate as the Lord, and it hangs across the thigh. In his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hmm. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. These are those that came to destroy Israel. And they come to destroy Israel, according to Psalm 2, to keep Messiah from returning. Because they say, we will not allow God to rule over us. Well, they can say it, but they can't bring it to pass. Verse 19, I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, false messiah, a beast of Revelation 13, whichever term you like. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So who do they want to make war against? Messiah. Messiah, who's returning. They say, we can keep him from returning. So somehow they know that he's returning. Is it interesting that, that you know, what people don't realize now, don't talk about or they deny, it's going to be open, it's going to be, you know, revealed. Yep. Remember, Revelation 16, they're shaking their fist in God's face, knowing from whence the judgments come. But Satan has them persuaded that we can beat him. Yeah, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it. No, they can't. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. That's the other beast of Revelation 13. But which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. What's brimstone? Sulfur. Why do you put sulfur in a fire? It makes it hotter. Makes it hotter. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, meaning he speaks the word of God and they fall dead. And all the birds were filled with their flesh, meaning there's so many, there's no one left to bury them. Back to Zechariah chapter 12, we're up to verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David. What's the house of David? That's what? The kingly line. Yes. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the rightly kingly descendants and the general population. 
the spirit of grace and supplication. Remember Jeremiah 31, 34. And they all will know God. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. What comes after the word me in Hebrew that doesn't come across in English is an olive and a tov. Which Messiah says in Revelation chapter 22 is him. He is the olive and the tov. Or in our English it says the alpha and omega, but eh, that's from Greek. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That is not translated very well. I want you to look at a few specific words in that verse. When it says, they will look on me. Do you see that? Circle that, on me. The Hebrew does not say on me. It says, to me. They will look to me. In other words, they will accept me. They will accept me as their king, as the rightful son of David, as the Messiah that was promised from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on. Then they will look upon me. In Hebrew it says, a lie. And then the olive tav, as I mentioned, which is Messiah, whom they pierced. Well, it was the Romans who pierced him, but why did the Romans pierce him? Because the Jewish people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So God says they're going to recognize the personal responsibility of our ancestors. Yes, they will mourn for him. It does not say for him. It says alav. That is, they will mourn over him. He's going to be present. They're going to be weeping, recognizing that we caused your crucifixion when you were here to save us, to deliver us. As one mourns for his only son, it's not for it's as one mourns over his only son. When you have a child who dies as a parent, you know how you cry and weep over the child before they bury him. That's how they're going to weep over Messiah. And grieve for him. It's not for him, it's over him. We'll grieve over him as one grieves over a firstborn. And granted, it doesn't change the entire meaning, but it puts it more in perspective. They will look to him. They will understand who he is. They will accept him as Messiah, as Savior, as King, as Redeemer, and recognize the great sin of the nation in crying, crucify him, crucify him. Is telling us about the salvation of Israel. One more time back to Ezekiel 38 to just remind us of those last two verses. In fact, we'll look just mainly at that last verse. Ezekiel 38, verse 23. Thus I will magnify myself. What does it mean to magnify? 
to exalt myself so that people will see me for whom I am and sanctify myself. Sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. So people will recognize that God is not like the world. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And that word Lord is the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav that go all the way back to Mount Sinai when Moses said, what's your name that I may tell the people? And then in Ezekiel 39, the very next chapter, it's still about the battle of Gog and Magog. Let's start in verse 6. And I will send fire on Magog. Magog's not the person. Magog is the land up toward Russia. And then those who live in security in the coastlands, that's the Gentile nations. So the fire is not just falling on the soldiers on the Golan, but on the nations who turned against God and sent the soldiers to the battle. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So see, it's not just localized and the Golan Heights in Israel, but the nations around the world as the fire falls on him will come to realize that he is the Lord. Verse 7 says, So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. What's that holy name? That's Yeshua. That's her Messiah. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One. In Israel. What's Holy One? That's Hakodesh. Hakodesh. When he said in 38, I will sanctify myself, make myself holy, this means they will recognize that He is holy and we are sinful and we need to be redeemed. Verse 8, surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. From the times of old. Let's go on to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. This is about the crucifixion of Messiah. In verse 30, Messiah died. Verse 31 tells us when it happened. John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day. Too often we read over details like that. We just go on. But the preparation day is the 14th day of the first month in the biblical calendar. It's the day that we call Passover. It's the day that they killed the lamb. They killed the lamb at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and Messiah just died at what time? 
3 o'clock in the afternoon, exactly the time that they killed the lamb with the words, it is finished. Messiah dies with the words, it is finished. So it's the preparation day, it's the 14th, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At sundown, three hours later, it becomes the 15th. So it says that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So three hours later, at 6 p.m., begins a Sabbath day. But it's not the weekly Sabbath, which is from Friday night to Saturday night. The parenthetical says, for that Sabbath was a high day. So the day that began three hours after he died was the 15th day of the first month, which is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a high Sabbath. In the year that Messiah died, he died on Thursday. Friday was the high Sabbath. Saturday is the weekly Sabbath. That's why in Matthew it says the women came to the tomb after the Sabbath in Greek. In English, they just made it Sabbath because they couldn't figure out how there was more than one, but that's how there was more than one. It says in verse 13, it goes on, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. The reason to break the legs is when you're being crucified, you can't breathe, your lungs are being crushed, so you push up with your feet so that you can get a breath, and that way crucifixion can take days for somebody to die. But if you break the legs, they can't push up anymore and they die quickly. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. When they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. What had the prophecy said in Exodus 12? You can't break a bone of the Passover lamb. So they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. In Zechariah 12.10, they shall look upon me whom they pierced. This is the piercing they're talking about. And immediately blood and water came out. I haven't asked you, Doc, but most physicians that I've talked to said when the blood separates from the water, somebody's dead. Yeah. She's going, yep, yeah, uh-huh, okay. And he who has seen has testified. I mean, John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. And his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. Where's that prophecy? Exodus 12, 46, which is the first Passover when Israel was still in Egypt. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. What scripture is that? That's Zechariah 12.10, the one we just looked at. Now, let's go back to Zechariah 12.10 for a moment. It said, I'll pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. In my congregation down in Alabama, I had a woman who was born in Germany, a Jewish woman who met Adolf Hitler when I think she said she was 17 years old. And her father, when they got home, said, I'm sending you to the States. We can see what's coming. You've got to get out of here. And she came here to the States. She later got saved. And she was part of our Messianic congregation down in Alabama. And I was talking about the word grace. And she put up her hand and said, 
the church has always told me that there is no grace in the Old Testament. The word doesn't even appear there. So what are you talking about? I said, well, let's go look. So open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 8. But Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has always been here. It's not just a New Testament concept. It's always been here. Genesis chapter 18. The Hebrew word there for grace is chen. Chen. C-H-E-N. Chen. Genesis chapter 18. Verse 3. This is Abraham. He has just circumcised himself. And that's why he's sitting under a terebinth tree. Okay. In verse 3, he says to the Lord, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, that word is grace. They chose to translate it here as favor, but they could have translated it as grace the same way. It's the same word, chen. And do not pass on by your servant. Okay, that's the word grace. Yes, it's all over the Old Testament. This is all over the New Testament. God doesn't change. But what in the world is a supplication? It's a prayer. Let's go to Second Chronicles. Does God answer prayer? Yes. But there's a stipulation. Proverbs 28, verse 9. He who turns his ear away from hearing the Torah, the law... Even his prayer is an abomination. And then in John chapter 9 verse 31 he says, Yes, we know that the Lord does not hear sinners. But if anyone's a worshiper of his and does his will, him he hears. Second Chronicles. What chapter did I tell you? Chapter 6. Verse 21. And we'll start in verse 20 so we know what verse 21 is talking about. In fact, we'll start in 19. Why not? I don't know why they don't put whole sentences in a verse, but sometimes it goes across several verses. So verse 19 said, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. That's parallelism. Supplication is the prayer. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you. That your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night. Toward the place where you said you would put your name. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. So a supplication is a prayer. Go to Psalm 28. 
is particularly a prayer of forgiveness, repentance. Psalm 28, verse 2. This sounds like a psalm of David. You know why? Because it's a psalm of David. Psalm 28, verse 2. Let me give you a chance to find it. Oops, I have a question out here and go to meeting land. Let's see what it says. And his name will be the Lord our righteousness. Adonai Zedekanu from the book of Ezekiel. That is correct. Psalm 28, verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. So when David prays, which way does he face? Whichever way the sanctuary is. <laughs> toward the sanctuary, that's right. You said east, when he's west, he faces east, that's right. Here in the United States, it's to the east. And then in the same chapter, verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. When David prayed to the Lord, the Lord heard his prayer, and he answered him. Go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Yep, I told you today we were going to study Zechariah 12, and I still remember the words of Mike Leslie. Whatever he says we're going to study, he's lying to you because we'll be all over the Bible. Well, that's true. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Remember, Zechariah 12, 10, And they shall mourn over me whom they pierced. Matthew 24, 30 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? That's our Messiah, Yeshua, will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's Zechariah 12, 10. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Revelation 19, 11. The clouds of heaven, how great a cloud of witnesses. That cloud that he's returning with are the raptured and resurrected saints. And then finally on this topic, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 7, I told you in Zechariah 12.10, after upon me, there's an Aleph and a Tom. It's not translated to English because the translators didn't have a clue what it meant. There is an Aleph Tav that is et, that's a direct object marker, but this Aleph Tav is not et, it's eight. It's different. And here in, John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, just like we just read. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Those are the tribes that are going to mourn. 
and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Just scratch out Alpha and put Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. And Omega is Tav, T-A-V. It's the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What does Messiah call himself here? The Almighty? What does the Almighty mean? Almighty God. Does that make you think of Psalm 9, verse 6? How about Isaiah 9, 6? What I was really thinking is that's the next song in the songbook, but we didn't get to it today. It's the one for next week. Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born. Kiyelad yulad lanu. A yelad is a baby born by a woman. That's Messiah's first coming. Unto us a son is given. That word son is not baby. That's the second coming. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And then the next one is Mighty God. So in Revelation 1.8 of himself, he says, I am the Almighty. He is the Mighty God. And that word mighty there, Gabor, means a mighty warrior. Just like we've been reading about. Back to Zechariah 12. Verse 11. In that day. What day? Day of the Lord. There shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Not mourning as in the sun came up. What kind of mourning is this? Great lamentation. Why? Because they're mourning over Messiah whom they called crucify him, crucify him. Like the morning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Quick, show of hands. Who knows what in the world that means? Then let's go look. 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Megiddo is where Armageddon will take place, but we're talking about something that happened thousands of years ago. 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning in verse 19. Some of the kings of Judah were actually godly kings. Not very many, but a few. And one of those was Josiah. And that's what we're going to read about in 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning in verse 19. This is what took place at Hadad Ramon. 2 Kings 23. Let me give you a chance to get there. Oh, I have another question out there and go to meeting land. Pat says, when we pray, do we have to turn to the east? Don't have to, but it's a good idea. David did. Daniel did. All those in the scriptures did because, well, that's where God chose to put his name. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 19. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places. Those are pagan places. They were in the cities of Samaria. 
which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. The kings in the north had put up what? Two golden calves. We know from Mount Sinai how God feels about the golden calves, don't we? Not good. And he did to them according to all the deeds he'd done at Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. Where was that prophesied, that very end? First Kings chapter 13. 400 years before the events. God named Josiah by name and said he was going to do this. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Then the king commanded all the people saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. What book of the covenant are we talking about? The Torah. The law. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel. Nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Meaning not with such joy and such passion. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him who turned the Lord with all his heart. That includes David. Is that not a big statement? With all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So even Hezekiah and David paled in comparison to Josiah. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo, where he confronted him. Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in his place. So what happened in Hadad Ramon was the death of King Josiah, the king that God called the most godly, most righteous king that Israel or Judah ever had. And the people mourned for him so much that that's what's recorded for us here in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11, that they will mourn for Messiah like they mourned for Josiah at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The plain of Megiddo, go to Revelation 16. That's where Armageddon takes place.
Revelation 16, we'll start in verse 12. Revelation 16, we'll start in verse 12. Let me give you a minute to find it. Brother Wayne? Yes, Rachel. If King Josiah was such a great God king, why did God not protect them from uh, being killed at Megiddo? Because God told him not to go, and Josiah went anyway. Thank you. Yeah, nobody's perfect. So Revelation 16, starting in verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. How many of you have seen all the videos on the river Euphrates lately? It's almost completely dry. That was one of the greatest rivers, and it's been there since the Garden of Eden, and it's almost dry. So that the way the kings from the east might be prepared... And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Behold, as he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered him together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. But Armageddon is not from the Hebrew, it's from the Greek. They translate from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English. In Hebrew it's Har, H-A-R, that means mountain. And Megadon, from which they get Megiddo. So that's the mountain that overlooks the Jezreel Valley, where the battle of Armageddon will take place. When my daughter was little, she'd say, Daddy, I'm afraid to shower. What if God comes and I'm caught naked? I said, don't worry, this is in the tribulation period. you got time to shower. <laughs> so back to Zechariah chapter 12. Back to Zechariah chapter 12. Verses 12 to 13. And the land shall mourn, the entire nation. That means the entire nation has gotten saved, as the scripture tells us. Every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself, which means that house of David still remains, even though people may not know they're part of it. And their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. Who was Nathan here? Actually, this is one of the sons of David, named after the prophet. This is one of the sons. And another son of David is Shimei here in verse 13. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. So God takes three verses there to tell us it's every individual is going to mourn over the crucifixion of Messiah. Let us go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 4. 
Is this perhaps after the 144,000 had gone out preaching? Because oh, yeah, the 144,000 started preaching at the start of the seven-year tribulation. Because the, so many people don't believe or have heard, but when that word goes out, every person will be responsible, and if they repent, they will have knowledge for which they can repent. That's right. By the end of the tribulation period, the 144,000 have been preaching for seven years. The two witnesses preached from the um, wailing wall for three and a half years. And Revelation says there are angels that have been going around the globe preaching the everlasting gospel. And that's all at the beginning. All three of those are at the beginning? Yes. But most of them go all the way through. Right. Not the two witnesses. They die. Right, right. But start it. But they start right at the beginning. But in Zechariah that we're reading, they don't know yet the revelation of the 144,000 and the angels, but they are saying every single person is going to repent. But they will have had the chance for for seven years now to hear the preaching of the 144,000. So in Zechariah 12, we're talking about the end of the seven-year tribulation period. But I'm saying, are the people in Zechariah 12, or, or back in that period of history, are they aware of Ezekiel 38 and, and the implications. Ah, so the people that are hearing the prophecy at that time, yeah, they don't know about the 144,000. They just hear that everyone is going to be mourning for some reason yeah. and repenting. Right. They don't understand yet that Psalm 22 said that Messiah would die by crucifixion a thousand years before he was born when David wrote Psalm 22. Right. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 4. Starting in verse 2. Begins in that day. That puts us in the same time period as Zechariah 12, right? In that day the branch of the Lord, that's Messiah. Here the word branch is Zamak. Shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth, that's the believers that have gotten saved. Shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Escaped the tribulation period. Those who come to the end and see Messiah's return. And it shall come to pass that who's left in Zion. That's prophetic Jerusalem. When Messiah returns and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded amongst the living in Jerusalem. Who's going to be called holy? Each and every one. That's what Zechariah was trying to get across. It says, verse 4, When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, that's by the seven-year tribulation period, and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning. Those are the judgments in the tribulation period. The Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That's how they knew God was among them in the wilderness. And once more, God will be dwelling in their midst. It says, for over all the glory there will be a covering. Talk about a light translation. That word covering is a chuppah. It's the marriage canopy. Who dwells under the marriage canopy? The bridegroom and the bride. So this tells us that all Israel will have been joined to Messiah like the bridegroom and the bride. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat. 
for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Back to Zechariah. Let us remind ourselves and put in your notes Revelation chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 that we just looked at a few minutes ago. As well as Matthew 24, 30 because we just looked at that one too. And we will move on to chapter 13. What's chapter 13 about? About the day of the Lord just like 12 was. How do we know? Look at verse 1. In that day, the day of the Lord, a fountain. What's a fountain? Water spurting up, right? That moving water is called in Hebrew, Mayam Chayim, living water. Keep a finger here and go to John chapter 7. Messiah told us what that water represents, what it's a picture of. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37, it's about the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a prophecy of God dwelling amongst men, Messiah being right here in our midst. During the, trip, during the day of the Lord, the Messianic kingdom. And in John 7, 37 says, On the last day, that is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, that great day of the feast, in Hebrew that's called Hoshana Rabbah, and it means the great salvation. That's what that seventh day is called, is the great salvation. Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of Mayim Chaim, living water. But this he spoke concerning what? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Back to Zechariah 13, verse 1. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The fountain of living water to wash us clean, to fill us with the Holy Spirit, is a way of saying that the children of Israel by this point have repented and turned back to God and been saved. God washes the sins and uncleannesses away and fills us with the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Mr. Wayne. Yes, ma'am. Sounds like that Susie. Fountain, is it, yes, sir. Is it a physical fountain for which maybe a mikvah is taken? Yep, there's going to be a physical fountain. We're going to get to that. It's even going to make a river that flows down and will make the Dead Sea into a living body of water. You're just getting a little ahead of me. You know where I'm going. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. 
For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Who's the me? Me is the Lord. Now we know who the Lord is because Messiah himself says in John chapter 7, this is me. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In Israel, it tends to rain twice a year, right? The early rain, the latter rain. So how do the people in Jerusalem drink? They make cisterns. That is, they cut huge caverns out of the rock and they line it with limestone so that it holds water and the limestone helps purify the water and keep it clean. But they say they fume for themselves broken cisterns. That is, they hold no water. So what do those broken cisterns refer to here? It's a picture of the idols. God is the fountain of living waters. The idols, they don't hold any water. They can't bring salvation to anyone. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 1. Oh, look at the time. Let's, let's skip one and go to 13. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So again, it indicates that the Lord is the fountain of living waters and Messiah in John chapter 7 said, that's me. We've already looked at Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34. That is the new covenant. And at Romans chapter 11 verses 26 and 27 which says all Israel shall be saved. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 13 to verse 2. Verse 2. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts. So we have two keys if this is end times prophecy. The first is the phrase in that day, which in Hebrew is what? Bayom Hahu, and then the Lord of hosts in Hebrew, Adonai Zavaot. Both tell us, we're talking about end times prophecy. That I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land, referring to the false prophets. When it says the names of the idols shall be cut off from the land, it means no more idolatry. No more idolatry. Let's start in Ezekiel 43.
From the time of the Exodus, Israel has turned time and again away from the Lord our God to the pagan idols. But the day is coming, says the Lord, that that won't happen ever again. Ezekiel 43 has the return of the Lord at the end of Revelation 19.11 Messiah will set his feet on the Mount of Olives walk through the eastern gate and sit himself on the throne in the temple of God Ezekiel 43 start in verse 6 then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. This is where Messiah will rule and reign through the Messianic kingdom. And the place of the soles of my feet, which means ownership and possession, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. So we all know this hasn't happened yet, right? This is still future. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. That means no more idolatry ever. They nor their kings by their harlotry, which is idolatry. Or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Remember Israel actually put idols into the temple of God? Yep, they did that. It says, therefore I have consumed them in my anger. That is, they went into captivity for 2,000 years plus. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me. No more idolatry. And I will dwell in their midst forever. Isaiah chapter 31 also tells us that idolatry will come to an end. Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31 beginning in verse 7. For in that day, when does it take place? The day of the Lord. Every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. Sin, which your own hands have made for themselves. thinking that may say Isaiah chapter 2 we'll see Isaiah chapter 2 verse 18 it is in fact but the idols he shall utterly abolish Verse 20, in that day, that tells us when, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for themselves to the moles and the bats, 
to into the cleft of the rocks, into the crags of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. What was that reference, Brother Wayne? That was Isaiah chapter 2, verses 18 and verses 20 to 21. So, Thank you. Yep. Not only will there be no more idols, but let's go back to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2. There will also be no more false prophets. What are false prophets? Prophets who prophesy in the name of the Lord, but God didn't send them. And their message is to lead people away from God, right? That's going to stop. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. It wasn't just in Old Testament times. We'll start in verse 13 for context. So we'll start in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 to make sure we get the context. Understand verses 13 and 14 are talking about people who think they are saved. Verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. So many think they're on the path to heaven and they're not. Verse 14 says, Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Why? The answer is in verse 15. Beware of false prophets, false teachers, if you will who come to you in sheep's clothing. They pretend to be godly men leading you to heaven. But it says, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're leading you to the lake of fire. How can you tell one from the other? Verse 16 says, you will know them by their fruits. Do they follow God's commandments or do they teach you to break them? What lawlessness do they teach Following the commandments or breaking the commandments? If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. It says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. These are the false teachers teaching people to break God's commandments. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? What's their righteousness based on? Based on man-made commandments, their own commandments, their own instructions. So Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 20 says... Your doctrine needs to be based upon God's commandments, not the instructions of man. Go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is about the return of the Lord. These are words spoken by Messiah out of his own lips. 
Verse 11 says, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. How does the rise of many false prophets relate to the increase in lawlessness? That's what the false prophets are teaching. Teaching that you don't need to keep God's commandments. Just have faith in Jesus. He'll take care of it all. You just walk in sin. Does our Bible say keep walking in sin? If we go to Ephesians 4.17, the Apostle Paul is very clear. Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And a futility, meaning perverseness of their mind. Well, if we're not supposed to walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk, what are we supposed to do? Look at verse 22. The same chapter, Ephesians 4.22. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Does the scripture say without holiness no one will see God? Yep, so when it says true righteousness and holiness, what's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So put aside the lawlessness and walk uprightly before God. Okay, go back to Matthew 24 to verse 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. Satan will do anything and everything he can do to keep you from obeying God's commandments. And it says in Matthew 24, 24, For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. What does it tell us in Revelation 13? Let's go up to Revelation 13. The false prophet is going to do such great signs and wonders that if you're not saved, you might believe that this is truly God in human form. We'll start in Revelation 13, verse 11. This is not about the Antichrist. This is about the false prophet who causes people to worship the false Messiah. So Revelation 13. Oops, I got two questions or comments out here. and go to meeting land. Let's see what they are. Yeah. Yep, okay. Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast. This is a false prophet coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb that is he claims to be a Christian leader leading people to God. And he spoke like a dragon that is he's really Satan's man. 
and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. If you saw somebody standing on the street today calling fire down from heaven, would you be impressed? I would be impressed. But God says, don't be misled. That doesn't mean he's my man. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Every one of the apostles in the New Testament warns us about the false prophets and false teachers. Starting with the Messiah and all the way through to the end. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, talking historically. Even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. What is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. The Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So Peter warns these false teachers will teach us that we do not need to follow God's commandments. They're not doing it secretly, though. Yeah, they're not doing it secretly anymore. Hmm. Boy, brings a tear to my eye. Well, what did John say? 1 John chapter 4. Really? 1 John chapter 4? What did John tell us? Remember, John writes long after all the other apostles are gone, right? He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets, many false teachers. Back to Zechariah chapter 13. We're up to verse 3. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, they're not true prophets, they're false prophets, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And people go, Isn't that harsh to kill a prophet just because he's a false prophet leading people to the lake of fire? That's Deuteronomy 13. Let's go back and read what God said in Deuteronomy 13.
Deuteronomy 13. Starting in verse 1. And we'll go till time expires. Deuteronomy 13. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, who allows the sign or wonder to come to pass? God does. God allows it. Of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. To serve means to obey them rather than God. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you. What's it mean to entice? Using smooth words to get you to do it. Yeah. To entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. The false prophet who's leading people away from God are leading them to eternal death. To put the prophet to death is to stop that from happening. It's actually an act of mercy. Verse 6 says, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers. Of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him. Nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, but afterward the hand of all the people. Now let me throw in a caveat. You do not walk around with stones in your pocket throwing them at people. It talks about bringing people to court, proving a case, and letting the court issue a judgment. So in today's modern world, we don't put a gun in our pocket going around and shooting people because we say they're false prophets. No, 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 don't do that. Verse 10, you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness. As this among you. If you hear someone in one of your cities which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in saying, corrupt men, what's it actually say, Daniel? Sons of Belial, that is, sons of Satan, have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. 
Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently, i.e., have a trial. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock with the edge of the sword. Do you get the point God's making? If someone is leading you to the lake of fire, that is a bad thing. So we've run out of time. We will pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4.